Today's reading is from Numbers 13, 25 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we all have that thing, right? Uh, That thing that we would do if we weren't afraid, right? And, And so every single one of us has that thing. And I'm just curious, as you think about your own life, what would you do if you were not afraid? For some of us, that might mean, you know, asking for that overdue raise at a current job. For some, that might mean confronting that family member or that friend who's been a bit boorish uh, with you. Um, Maybe, just maybe, it might mean taking a day off from work. Or maybe wearing a jean romper, you know? I know, never do that. No matter, don't ever let your inhibitions drop that low. No, but in all seriousness, what would you do... What would you do if you were not afraid? We all have those things that kind of terrify us, that stop us in our tracks from moving forward what we know is better right there in front of us. And today we're going to talk about what it looks like to lead a life overcoming fear. And I want to be clear right from the get-go that what I'm not talking about and what we're not going to address this morning is what we would often consider clinical anxiety or some sort of fear related to a significant trauma. For that, there are gifted professional counselors through healthy assistants that are essential at certain points in life. But broadly, what we're talking about today is the fear that we face every day. And maybe another way to ask that is, where do you struggle to trust God? And how do we lead lives overcoming rather than overcome? It's in light of those individual longings that we all have and this collective calling we have together that last week we began a series titled Bold Faith, Bold Faith. And part of that's because we also believe we're in a moment as a church where God is demanding of us collectively to have bold faith. God's given us this opportunity to propel our mission forward, but we also know it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy really at all. You see, Across campuses, we, we as Christ Community, we're five campuses across that stretch across Kansas City. 
and, and the, the pastoral staff across all five campuses with the affirmation of the elder board believe that both here at our downtown campus and at our Shawnee Mission campus, the need for a more adequate home is now. And I want to be clear, the church is way more than a building, but we also know how an appropriately sized and configured building can really facilitate a shared mission. And so over these, uh, you know, these three weeks, we're exploring a really important topic because we believe that God has called us to really pursue a space here downtown um, that we're in early conversations around and a space in our Shawnee mission uh, community. And to kind of help us prepare for that, we're exploring afresh as a church, as followers of Jesus, what faith, what bold faith actually looks like lived out, such that when it's really terrifying and when you don't have all the answers, how do you still step out and watch God work, right? And so over this three weeks, we're going to be diving into God's Word together, exploring that together. Last week, we began this conversation with a really important understanding that bold faith, that bold faith sees today's obstacles in light of God's previous work, right? Bold faith is not blind faith. It's not closing your eyes and stepping out into the darkness. But rather, it's looking back over how God has worked in the past to sow buoy confidence in the present that God will carry us forward into the future. And so last week, we perused kind of our 30-year history as one church across five campuses and how God has prepared us, cared for us, provided for us in this robust mission. And this morning, today we're going to look at one of the greatest catalysts of bold faith for you and I, one of the, the greatest secrets for bold faith and how we live and lead our lives overcoming rather than overcome. And what we're going to come to discover that a life of bold faith has much less to do with knowing what is before us, and much more to do with knowing who is with us. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers, Numbers chapter 13, Numbers chapter 13. And we find Israel right here on the border of the land that God had promised their ancestors over generation after generation to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Behind them, there at the promised land, behind them is 400 years of brutal oppression in Egypt. And before them is everything that God had promised them, a place, a home. And God had told them to send in 12 spies, right, to look out and to check out this land. And now they've come back. And just imagine this moment, okay, they've spent 40 days scouting out high and low all the promised land. And this is like the great debut. This is like you've been waiting for this movie to come out for weeks, right? And you're waiting in line because you want to be one of the folks not in the front row, not in the far back, right in the middle. So everybody comes together, young and old, the privileged and the poor. Everybody's together waiting to hear what this land is like that God has said is going to be so great that he's going to give his people. Everybody's gathered around together. And then we get down to verse 30. And we read, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land 
through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now, interestingly enough, they walked the same land, they talked to the same people, they saw the same things, and yet Caleb, and we come to see Joshua as well in the broader context, come to drastically different conclusions over against the other 10 spies as to what indeed they're to do in light of that. Now, what, what is the major difference that causes these different outcomes? Is it that they are assessing what's before them slightly differently? You know, the 10 spies see it this way and, and Joshua and Caleb see it this way that, the, you know, Joshua and Caleb, they're just naturally more optimistic people. You know those folks. They don't just see the glass half full, but it's like fuller than it actually is. And you're like, come on, bring it down a notch. And then the other 10 are like realists, aka pessimists. You know, so like they're just, they just see reality differently. Is that what the, is that what makes the difference? No. No. What makes all the difference in the world is how and who they understand we to be. Who they mean when they say we. Do you see that? Because they both say, hey, we are well able to overcome it. No, we are not. It all comes down to what they understand and what they mean when they say we. For the 10 of the spies and the majority of Israel, when they say we, they literally mean Israel, the people that they can touch and they can feel. We, when I look around at this group, we can't do this. But then Caleb, he has a different understanding of we altogether. He says, we are well able to overcome it. And he includes someone much bigger in his we. And we, we get this context. This isn't just something that is taken out of thin air. This is actually in the broader context of the story. If you jump down to Numbers 14, beginning in verse 8, we hear who Caleb means when he says we. He says, If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. In other words, this is going to be so easy, it's going to be like eating lunch, okay? Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The Lord is with us. Right there, Caleb is including God in his we. And listen, no matter what comes up against them, nothing, no matter how difficult the task, no no matter how impossible it may seem, if God is with them, then nothing can stop them. Caleb has a drastically different understanding of we. And what he does is he displays a crucial principle in the life of faith. If we're trying to understand what does it look like to lead a life overcoming rather than overcome, what does it look like to step out with bold faith? Right here, Caleb exemplifies a crucial principle of the life of faith. Faith, as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And when it comes to bold faith, we come to see that our faith is emboldened when we are convicted that God is with us. 
when we're convicted that God is actually with us, when we include God in our we. Now, so many times we can think, and I, I've heard this lie before, and maybe you've heard it too about faith, that if you just have faith, you won't have fear. There's no greater lie in the world. Faith, faith does not eradicate fear. Instead, faith yields courage and confidence that we can actually acknowledge our fears and move forward anyway. To say that faith somehow eradicates fear gives us a, that's a hopeless position because none of us in here have ever felt that experience of absolute fearlessness. And that's not what faith promises us. Instead, faith says you can stare the monsters in the face and notice the contours and the difficulty and just how large they actually are and then say, yeah, but have you seen my God? Or daddy. Or daddy, yeah. It's an inclusion of God in our we. It's a different understanding of reality broadly. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, you have to understand that your faith, the strongest component of your faith isn't actually the strength of your faith. <laughs> the strongest component of your faith is where you place your faith, right? So you can, you can wake up on Tuesday morning and be utterly convicted, have this really strong faith that your lemon of a car is going to get you to work, you know? And then you get to a red light and that sucker dies on you, right? You had deep conviction that it was going to make you make it one more day, that you were going to be perfectly fine just one more day. You believed it down to your bones. But you put your trust in an object that was, didn't have the capacity to deliver. The most important component of your faith is where you place it. And as followers of Jesus, as people of God, where do we place our faith but in a god who is strong, who is all-powerful, and who is with us right there in the midst of everything. And you know what that means? What's that? That's right. He can't lie. Our God is with us. And if that's true, if God is deeply with us, and if God is included in our we, you know what that means? That means you're never alone. It means you're not alone when it comes to raising your kids. It means you're not alone in that work project that feels extraordinarily overwhelming. It means you're not alone when it comes to paying your bills or just navigating broader vocational discernment. It means you're not alone when you feel utterly alone. It means you're never alone. You know, Halloween, um, Halloween is a really bad holiday for, my, for the Coyle household, and here's why. My kids, they love to dress up and they love to eat candy like every other kid. I mean, look at this, right? They're super cute and the kids are great too. Like, you know, um, sorry. Come on, you guys. Come on, wake up a little bit, just a little bit. Um, no, but uh, Halloween is absolutely terrif terrifying for my kids. I'm pretty sure that my son Israel is still processing some trauma from a motion-activated Frankenstein in Costco, like right now. <laughs> Like every breakfast, he'd be like, is, is Frankenstein going to be at Costco? We're not going to Costco, Israel. It's going to be fine. Like, you're going to be okay. Um, just relax, buddy. And like those 30 nights leading up to Halloween and like the eternity that there follows, like they'll be in their beds and I'll hear them crying out because they're afraid they saw a ghost. And so what do I do, right? I come upstairs as a dad desperately wanting them to go to sleep. Um, 
And I say, hey, what's going on? <laughs> They're like, we thought we saw a ghost. Well, you don't have to worry. Why? Mommy and Daddy are here. And we've got you. You're going to be safe. It's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. Do I look scared? No. Okay. It's going to be fine. Sometimes I am. I'm like, wait, where did you see that? No. Um, <laughs> just get out of the room quick. They're going to be fine. Oh, my goodness. Allie, hold me. Um, no, but the truth of the, re- the matter is, is that we have a heavenly father who's, who's that much more worthy of our trust, who says to this church, who says to you and I, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He who has made a promise in Matthew 16 that not even the gates of hell will be able to overcome his church. And church, God is with us. And so we have nothing, nothing to fear. And he's a much better dad than I am. Much more capable dad than I am. And that is who is with us. And yet it's really easy to forget that in the everyday fears of life. When your fears are staring you in the face, it can be blinding and you can completely forget everyone who's around you. It feels so isolating in the midst of those moments of fear. And we can especially forget that God is there with us in the midst of that. And listen, when you forget God is with you, fear takes over. When you forget that God is with you, fear, it just, it takes over. And when it takes over, it absolutely destroys and isolates and leads you down a path of destruction. And this is what we see with 10 of the 12 spies in the nation of Israel. They're consumed with fear. They have a very limited perspective on we, and they're blinded by it. You know, there's a healthy component of fear. I'm never going to say that there's like no right fear. Like there's a healthy fear that says don't jump off that cliff or you'll die. Like listen to that fear. But there's also other elements of fear where it crosses the line. And it actually leads to destructive behavior rather than preservation and life-giving behavior. There's a moment where fear crosses the line and actually consumes you. And the problem with when that actually happens is most of the time when you're actually consumed with fear, you don't even realize it. You just think, this is what I have to do because everything in your body, everything in your heart is saying, this is how I'm going to survive. So I want to give us three signs this morning that we see in our text that fear has taken over. So that when we start to see these signs, we can maybe pop our heads up and say, oh no, where are we? Okay? Three signs that fear has taken over, and they're anchored right here in our text, and these 10 spies and the majority of the people of Israel. And here's the first sign that we've forgotten that God is with us, and fear has taken over. The first sign is obstacles look bigger. Obstacles that are big seem like insurmountable giants. I mean, what did the 10 spies say? Their language here in the passage we just read is astounding, isn't it? They're like, these guys are huge. We look like grasshoppers. They look like Nephilim, which you're like, what's a Nephilim? Well, Nephilim is kind of like code for ancient mythical giants. Um, They're giants. We're grasshoppers. This is impossible. No way. And and the reality is they're not wrong. (laughs) These people were probably a lot bigger than them, significantly bigger than them. But God doesn't want them to focus on how big they are. He wants them to remember and to trust that God is with them and is bigger still. 
You see, they're at a point in faith, which is true for every single person of faith, that at those moments of decision, you can either choose to double down on God's promises and his presence and move forward with him, or you can exclusively look at your limited human resources and be daunted by the obstacles and run away scared. This is the decision over and over and over again for the people of faith. And so I want you to think about your own life. Is there anything, what in your life just seems way bigger than God right now? What in your life seems way bigger than God right now? Now the second sign, the second sign um, that we've forgotten that God is with us, the second sign that fear has taken over, yeah, the first is that the obstacles look bigger, but secondly, familiar just looks better. Familiar looks better. Look with me here at Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Then all, all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Fear makes us stupidly nostalgic. <laughs> I mean, think about this. Like, just imagine them in that moment. Oh, you remember the good old days when they used to murder our babies? And then we would work 20-hour days in the hot desert sun making bricks without straw. Oh, those were the days. Like, no, that's stupid, right? Fear does that when it takes control. You would rather choose the known pain of the past rather than deal with the mysterious struggles of the future because what fear does is it robs any sort of imagination for what could be better ahead and what God has for you. Fear robs any imagination that the future where God is leading you could actually be better. And we can, you know, laugh at their words, but we can only do so after we've poked fun at ourselves, right? Because how many times when we're faced with obstacles do we become nostalgic? Do we tend to aggrandize the past in such a way that we overlook all the pain and the heartache that God brought us out of before? I mean, this is never more true than I think. Here's a good example. Like when you come out of a toxic relationship, when you come out of a toxic relationship, sometimes in the midst of the, the in-between, in the midst of the mystery, you can think, yeah, I know that was rough, but at least I knew what I was dealing with. I know that was rough, but this next boss, this next career, this next relationship may be a lot worse, or worse yet, I may be alone the rest of my life. I may never get another job. I wish I could go back. And far too often, in those moments, the familiar can kind of tempt us back and, and aggrandize those good old days that weren't nearly as good and need to remain to be old. <laughs> And the reason it's so tempting is because we want control. And we are relentless to try to take it back and never ever to try to surrender it to God. I mean, here's the deal. In the past, at least you knew the rules. 
Like if you did this, this is what happened. Even if it was painful, you knew the rules. You had some level of control. And in the, in the future, you consistently are holding loosely control and God is saying, I've got you. And that's a terrifying place to be. But here's what bold faith does. Bold faith constantly calls us out of our comfort zones and guides us into uncharted territory where God says, you're going to have to rest in my control. That's what bold faith does again and again and again. So I want you to think, are there places in your life where the familiar is calling you to stop in your tracks? Where the familiar is saying, no, 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 there's no need to step forward. It's a lot better back here. Where in your life is the familiar beckoning you to stop? Stop in your tracks. Third sign, final sign, that fear has taken over and that, frankly, you've forgotten that God is with you. So the first is that the obstacles, they look bigger. Familiar looks better. The third is status quo looks easier. And isn't that fascinating? God, they're, they're right there on the border of the promised land. And, and they come back with all these grapes. And God's like, if you trust me, this is all going to be yours. He's promising something beautiful. You can have all these grapes and then some, right? Or you can stay where you are and dig grave, <laughs> dig graves. You can go and enjoy great graves and great grapes and, and great bounty, or you can dig graves. And the status quo, in the midst of fear, status quo just always looks easier. It looks better. And we see this, and God see, when, he, when God sees this, you know what he says to Moses? Jump down with me down to uh, Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. Numbers 14, verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will... Will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? When God looks at their behavior here, out of all the things he could come to describe, the way in which they choose rather to, to hunker down in status quo, to live in fear rather than trust God and his promises and his presence, what does he call it? He calls it despising him. Not just being human, I get it, not just making a little mistake and dropping the ball. God says this is an act of despising him. And what's even more sobering, I was, I was reading through this text and thinking about this this week, and it just struck me. What's so sobering is that God gives them what they want. You know what? I wish we could just die in the wilderness. I wish we could just go back to Egypt. And then what do we, what do we see? Jump down to verses 22 through 23. What does God say? None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times that have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. They're going to die in the wilderness. And then you go down. What happens to the ten spies who were so eager to go back to Egypt? Jump down to verse 37. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Really interesting language. Plague is not an incidental word. Plague is how God dealt with the Egyptians when they would not free God's people from their oppressive reign. So God says, hey, you want to die in the wilderness? You got it. You want to go back to Egypt and have what Egypt got? You got it. The plagues death. It's all yours. And I wanted to give you so much more, but I'll give you what you want. But it's so less than everything that I hoped for you. You see, in those moments, 
when we come to great cost, when we feel bold faith beckoning us forward, when God calls us to step out even though the odds seem insurmountable, what do we tend to do in those moments? We tend to assess what we have to give up. We, sit, we tend to kind of focus, well, this is, this is what I'm going to have to risk. This is what I'm going to have to surrender. This is what I'm going to lose by stepping out in this way. But in the midst of fear, when fear takes over, we forget to ask the question, well, what will it cost me if I don't step out? What's the cost if I don't step out in bold faith? I understand there's a cost when I do. I understand what I'm risking when I do, and that feels terrifying. But what is at risk if you don't step out in bold faith, wherever God has you in your life? And I want you to think about that. What, what will it cost you not to step out in bold faith where God has you today? And as important as these questions, you know, we've had some diagnostic questions to kind of tease this out through these three signs. As important as that is to ask these questions of ourselves, we need to be asking this question of us together as a church. We need to be asking, well, what about Christ's community today? All right? And I don't want to be clear. We said this last week. We're not Israel. This next facility, you know, isn't the new promised land. Um, but we can learn a lot from Israel's fear. We can learn a lot from Israel's failure. So how do we step out in bold faith? How do we do this when it seems so huge? I mean, purchasing two buildings? <laughs> At the same time when we weren't looking for them, while at the same time we're still paying off some of the expansion that we did in Olathe, doesn't that feel a bit insane? Yes, it does. It feels absolutely insane. We don't have all the answers for this. And yet we've scouted out the land. For four years we've been looking around the Shawnee Mission area for a space that more adequately positions them for dynamic impact in that community. Could you imagine if we had a space, if we'd had a space where they could live out our mission in a more compelling way for these past four years, where they would be, what God would have been doing over these past four years. Once again, it's not all about a building, but an appropriately sized and configured facility really does help us in accomplishing our mission in a physical space called the world. Um, and the same is true for downtown. For the past 18 months, we've scouted out the land <laughs> and looked at all the different opportunities, and here we are. And you know our needs better than anyone. Our Shawnee Mission campus is feeling a bit tired from set up and tear down for the past four years, you know, in that same space, and is hungry for a place to actually do some more dynamic work throughout the week. So when the obstacles, listen, when the obstacles, they seem and look bigger, when familiar tempts us to not move forward and status quo just feels really cozy, we have to remember that the opportunity is now. We have to look around and see what God has brought before us. And listen, it's not going to be cheap, and we don't know how we're going to pay for it yet. <laughs> um, some would call that crazy, and it is a little bit. Um, but at the same time, we think it's going to cost us so much more to not move forward. The cost is that much greater to not step out at this particular moment in history. And that's why... As much as you're seeing my face here, across all campuses, in every single sermon that's being preached, I'm in a little video, God help them, where I am explaining 
you know, the needs that we have in our downtown campus and in our downtown community and why this is a really strategic next step for us as a church across five campuses together. And as a pastoral staff across five campuses with the affirmation of the elder board, we believe not only the need is now, but the opportunity is right before us. And God is beckoning us and is with us moving forward to explore. We're in these early negotiations. I said this last week, but for those who weren't here, we're in those early conversations and negotiations for these two buildings for purchase, pending congregational approval. Once we get to that point, when we actually know what the price will be, right? Um, but we believe that the cost is that much greater not to move forward. And so we're going to be praying. We're going to be we're wrestling and we're asking the question more than just, okay, what is it going to cost us? What's it going to cost us not to move forward? And to even ask the question, man, in the midst of all this, what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church do we want to be a part of? And don't we want to be the kind of church who's willing to, to step out in bold faith and to give ourselves away for the people who haven't, who haven't even come here yet, the, the people we haven't even met yet, to have capacity for the people we do have that we have met? but also, and maybe more importantly, for those we haven't yet engaged. So what do we do, right? How, how do we respond uh, to all of this? Well, if faith is emboldened when we're convicted that God is with us. And when we forget that God is with us, fear takes over. I think there's an important challenge for all of us. When you think about all the stuff this next week in your own life, and when we think about our calling together as a church. I want to challenge each and every one of us to reorient our thinking and to include God in your we. To include God in your we. And I don't mean, listen, that can get real manipulative real quick. What I don't mean is that we're going to go where we want to go when we better expect God to be with us. That's not the way that God works. God is with us and is included in our we when he's in the lead. And we believe he's leading us in this next step with humbleness, with hopefully without presumption, but with genuine conviction that these are the next steps for the mission that God's called us to as a church. And when we do, when we see these obstacles and then we're not daunted by them as giants, when we're not tempted by familiarity and the status quo, as easy as it might be, doesn't beckon us to not move forward. You know what happens? Then we start comparing those giants, not to ourselves, but much more like Caleb, we start comparing them to our God. We stop, our prayers actually will start getting bigger because we stop praying prayers for the familiar, but start praying something much bigger than we're familiar with, that only God can do, that reminisces of heaven breaking into earth. And something much more beautiful than the status quo starts to be realized in the faith community of Jesus Christ. And isn't this what the world needs? Christians who aren't daunted by the obstacles before them, who aren't aching for the familiar and satisfied with the status quo? I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that our prayers are often way too puny because we often pray in light of who we think we are. And by that we, I mean just us in this room. Which if it was just us in this room, God help us, right? Um, and if, it, yeah. We need to have a broader understanding of who we are. And that's the crucial component of the life of faith. 
is that God is with us. Emmanuel. And not that he's just with us, but he came to be with us. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be like us. And then he came and he died for us. And then three days later, he rose again and defeated death and offered and paid for sin completely and offered forgiveness. And three days later, when he arose, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, not to abandon us, but that after he rose again and ascended to God the Father, at the right hand of God the Father, 40 days after walking with people who touched him, who saw him, who ate breakfast with him, then he sent his Holy Spirit to not just be with us, but miraculously now be within us. How much more us today at this point in history than Caleb? How much more us? And if we start including God in our we, I think, I think we'll start to see an, an even greater bold faith across campuses and what God could do through that when we are gathered together in his name and we are scattered across the city with our various vocations and callings and seeing what God can do that is beyond the familiar, beyond the status quo, that'll bolster our own faith and bring a greater glory to his name. If we start including God in our we, then we will be able to say like Caleb, we are well able to overcome it. And we can. The question is, will we? Let's pray. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word. Um, I far too often am consumed by my own fears. I see limitations rather than opportunities. I see roadblocks rather than you positioning yourself for great glory and beauty for the onlooking world to see what only you can do. God, help us not to be stupid, but help us to be bold and trusting where we think you're leading us to recognize the need and also recognize that ultimately we can move forward because you're with us and you're at the helm. May we see these obstacles, may we recognize the temptation of the familiar and not be lured by the status quo because you are with us. God, we need your help. All by the power of your spirit, we seek to do this and step out. Give us a sense of unity, clarity, and favor in the days ahead as we step out together, trusting you, whether it be in our lives personally and our community together. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.